Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that will enable you to contribute to my work and to help keep the podcast going and keep it light on advertising. Contributions start as low as $0.99 per month, with two other brackets at $4.99 per month or $9.99 per month. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a Cash App profile for the show. One-time contributions can be sent through Cash App to the show's cash tag, which is $MrJeffersonian, and all of this information will be listed in the show notes page as well. Any contribution amounts help, and thank you in advance to anyone who chooses to pitch in. And if you like the show, then please be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications for it. We are now available on all major podcast platforms. And to help the show grow, make sure to share it with your friends and family. And other show-related news, if there's a topic you'd like for me to cover, or if you just have general questions for me, I can be contacted at the show's email address, which is mrjeffersonian at outlook.com, or through the show's MeWe group, which is also titled The Jeffersonian Tradition. And if you're not on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. If you're not familiar with MeWe's platform, contacts are the same as being friends on Facebook. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, so today we're going to move forward in our trilogy dedicated to pensions. Um, as always, though, whenever we do a series, I'm going to start off by giving you guys a recap of our previous episode. So in the last episode, we took a look at some headlines throughout the year showing that pensions seem to always trend towards insolvency. We also discussed why pensions are bad from a conceptual level namely because the retirees don't own the funds. And for those who questioned me on that, the last employer I worked for shifted part of their retirement benefits into a cash balance pension plan. And here is a verbatim summary from their official pension plan description documents. It says, The retirement income benefit, or RIB account, is a notional bookkeeping account that is equal to the sum of your pay credits, including the one-time transition pay credit, if applicable, and your interest credits. The RIB account is just a hypothetical account and does not actually contain any specific funds for paying benefits, but the amount will be used to determine how much of a benefit you have earned under the RIB account formula. Are you still not convinced? Okay, that same document goes on to say this, how your RIB account benefit is determined. Your benefit under the plan is based on the balance of your RIB account. A RIB account is a hypothetical account, which means it does not actually contain funds used for paying benefits under the plan. Instead, your RIB account is created solely for the purpose of tracking your RIB benefit. Amounts are not actually deposited into a separate account for you. However, company contributions are held in a separate trust to pay plan benefits and are generally unavailable to the company or its creditors. So again, what that actually means is you you don't own the funds. The company made the contributions on the employee's behalf and retained full control of how the funds were invested. 
In my previous company's case, those funds were only invested in short-term treasuries and capped by the company to never be able to exceed a rate of return of 3%. That's also noted in the document. To that effect, it says your RIB account will be credited with interest credits as of December 31st of each year, based on your RIB account as of January 1st of that year. Your interest credit will be added to your RIB account balance as soon as practical following December 31st of each year. The amount of your interest credit is equal to the amount your RIB account would have earned had it been invested at an annual rate equal to the lesser of the following. The 10-year Treasury constant maturity rate effect for the prior October, so for example, for crediting interest in 2021, the relevant rate would, would be from October 2020 or 3% annually. Please note that regardless of the applicable 10-year Treasury constant maturity rate, in no event will your interest credit be less than zero. So, you don't own the funds, and I feel that I have adequately proved that point, so now we're going to go ahead and proceed with our topic for today, which is going to be the actual nuts and bolts structure of Colorado State Pension Plan, known as PARA. So, what is PARA? It is the Public Employees Retirement Association, it was established by Colorado State Law in 1931 to provide retirement and other benefits to the employees of more than 500 government agencies and public entities in the state of Colorado. It's made up of five separate employee categories. Those are the state division, school division, local government division, judicial division, and DPS division. It's administered under the authority of the Board of Trustees, which is comprised of 16 individuals, 13 of which are elected proportionally by department each May. This board has the controlling authority to determine the investments held within the pension fund, and so we have a body of 16 people who are supposed to adequately represent the investment preferences of 200,858 active contributors and 128,133 active retirees and benefit recipients. I, I don't think there's any way they can truly be representative, but you draw your own conclusions. Now, participation in the fund is mandatory, and it does preclude employee participation in Social Security. So I guess one good thing of this is anybody covered by this Ponzi scheme doesn't have to contribute to the federal Ponzi scheme. So how are pension benefits calculated under PARA? Well, it's a, kind of a convoluted formula, but this is pretty indicative of how these things work overall. So what you do is you take 2.5%, multiply that by the number of years of employment, and then multiply that by the highest three-year average salary. And the final benefit amount can be up to, but not more than 100% of the employee's highest average salary throughout the time that they work for the state. Under PARA scheme, this means that an employee can take their highest 36 months of salary, it does not have to be consecutive, and plug it in for the base to calculate their benefit. In real world examples, per the 2020 PARA financial report, the pension had 128,000 roughly retirees, and the beneficiaries received an average monthly payment of $3,204. The average age at retirement for para retirees in 2020 was 58.9. That's extremely young, so for context to compare that to the private sector, according to census data, the average age of retirement for Americans in, at large is 65 for men and 63 for women. So we see these public employees have roughly a seven-year advantage on men and about a five-year advantage on women. The average years of service at retirement for 2020 was 22.8 years. 
The average age of death for para-retirees as of the end of 2020 was 83 years. And this means that on average, para-retirees will be paid for 24 years in retirement versus 23 years while actively employed. This truly is an upside-down structure because when employers have to provide increased funding rates, it must come from the respective department payroll budgets, and that money could otherwise have been used for pay increases for current workers. And to prove that, I'm actually going to read to y'all the statement from Paris Contribution Rates official report from 2021. So this is in regards to what's called the AED and the SAED. So the Amortization Equalization Disbursement, or AED, and Supplemental Amortization Equalization Disbursement, SAED, are additional contributions remitted by employers. The SAED is to the extent permitted by law, to be funded by monies otherwise available for employee wage increases. The SAED is not credited to member accounts. These additional employer contributions based on the total payroll of para members and employees who can elect either para or another plan regardless of the plan elected are designed to reduce para's unfunded liability and amortization period. As we can see, it, that's not a good setup for, for the current employees because they're going to have to put more in and get ultimately most likely less out. And that ties into another point we made last episode. So I told y'all that pensions really do function like Ponzi schemes in the sense that newer participants have to perpetually contribute more to cover the payouts of previous participants. So in defense and proof of that statement, again, I'm going to read to you directly from Paris 2020, this time the popular financial report, which is available at www.copara.org if you want to check my source. All right, so just a statement before we talk about current contribution rates. It says the AAP, and the AAP was an automatic adjustment provision that actually was something passed by our state legislature. So it says the AAP was part of Senate Bill 18-200, which laid out a path to full funding. It also created a formula used to determine whether the fund is on track to reach that goal by 2047. So we're looking at, what, 26 years? If the fund gets ahead of or falls behind this goal, the AAP can alter member and employer contributions, the retiree annual increase, or AI, and the direct distribution from the state of Colorado. Limits are placed on how much these amounts can change in a single year and cumulatively. All right, so what we're going to do now is just kind of show some insane numbers here. Uh, we're going to compare 2020 to 2021. So in 2020... For the state, uh, member contributions were 10.5%. So, excuse me, this is state members other than than state troopers. Uh, member contributions were 10.5%. Employer contributions were 20.9%. In 2021, that same group, member contributions are 11%. Employer contributions are 21.40%. In 2020 for the state, specifically for state troopers, their contribution amount was 12.5%. The employer contribution was 23.6%. For 2021, the employee or member contribution is 13% for state troopers and 24.10% for the state. For the schools, uh, in 2020, it was 10.5%. And then the employer portion was 20.9% for 2021. It's 11% for the member and 21.4% for the state. And so we can see here, and then we'll do uh, the Denver Public Schools. They have their own little thing. So in 2020, their member contribution was 10.5%, and the employer contribution was 20.90%. In 
And then in 2021, it was 11% and 21.40%. And for the judicial section, it is 10.5% in 2020. Um, and then the employer rate was 23.61%. In 2021, it's 11% for the members of the judi judicial section and 24.11% for the state. So we can see in some cases, these folks are getting more than a 200% match on their contributions. I mean, that that's just insane. And it's still underfunded. I'm going to repeat that. It's still underfunded. Right now, uh, as of 2020 or the end of 2020, their funding rate was about 62.8%. So it's, again, they're, the state's given them a 200% match. The employees are having to contribute a larger than average amount, at least compared to the private sector, to these funds, and it's still underfunded. These things are a black hole. They are a black hole. They have over 128,000 people drawing an average monthly salary of over $3,000. That's about $400 million a month going out. It's insane. I, I mean, it truly, it, it's insane how much money these things suck up. And we have to realize there's a reason that private companies got away from doing defined benefit plans like this. It's because it, I mean, it just puts such a financial burden on the employer and it really does kind of hurt their long-term financial stability and viability. But, you know, I hear all the time, Mr. Jeffersonian, pensions are safe and guaranteed. No, not hardly. They can only be guaranteed insofar as shortfalls in projected investment returns can and in most cases will be confiscated from the taxpayers. This is going on in Illinois right now, and they're, they're losing people right and left because people don't want to pay the taxes. And what this does is it essentially makes economic slaves out of the private sector to subsidize the retirement of public employees who voluntarily accepted the position that they held. And as for the safety aspect... Paris 2019 financial report states that it had a net return of 17.4% and the 10-year annualized return was reported at 9.4%. But these numbers are skewed by some years that had huge returns. So I'm just going to give you a summary of their past 10 years on an annual basis. So this is going back to 2011. Uh, for that year, they had a return of 1.9%. You didn't mishear that, 1.9%. 2012, it was 12.9%. 2013, it was 15.6%, 2014, 5.7%, 2015, 1.5%, 2016, 7.3%, 2017, 18.1%, 2018, it actually had a loss of 3.5%, 2019 was 20.3%, 20 and 2020 was 17.4%. So with returns this large, I can guarantee you one thing, that means that the pension fund is not sitting there holding air quote, safe assets like bonds or CDs. They are putting billions of dollars into the stock market and the participants don't have any direct control in how that money gets invested. It is, again, strictly up to the board of trustees, which is at least elected by the participants each May, at least 13 of them. And they are trusted to act in a fiduciary role and choose the investments that the fund will hold. So just to give you an idea of what the fund is actually sitting there holding, at the end of 2019, the asset allocation broke down as follows. In global equity, so that, that's going to be stocks uh, from across the globe, that would be 56.9%. Fixed income, which would be um, investments such as bonds. It can be U.S. Treasury bonds, corporate bonds, whatever. Fixed income was 22.1%.
private equity, which is extremely risky, it was at 8.1%. Real estate was at 8.9%. Alternatives was at 3.5%. And then cash in short term was at half a percent. But in 2020, Para took on even more risk during the inflationary boom caused by all the helicopter money that was dispersed by the general government. So global equity for 2020 was up to 58%. Fixed income was down to 20.8%. Private equity held steady at 8.1%. Real estate was down to 8%. Alternatives were at 4.1%. And cash in short term was increased to 1%. Now alternatives from what I could find, that that's going to be like for small startups. This fund actually used to be called the Opportunity Fund. So this is going to be like for small startups. Para actually has, a, I, I don't know if this is a legal requirement or if it's just something they, they do to virtue signal, but they actually have to invest a certain amount in Colorado startups. Um, and I, I think that's mostly what that alternatives category is made up from based on what I could find. So given all this data, Para is clearly subject to the same investment risk that individuals participating in a 401k would be. And actually even more so because for an individual in a 401k, they at least have the control to say, oh, look, I, mm, I'm not I'm not comfortable with this much risk. Let me go ahead and, and reshuffle my assets here. Whereas Para, completely, well, I'm not going to say completely unaccountable, but it, it's a board of trustees who say, nope, we're just going to hold steady. And again, the only difference is that if Para's investments go belly up, they can turn to the state government, and in extreme cases such as Illinois, the general government, and lobby for bailouts from private sector citizens. Ultimately, this is the only, the only guarantee of safety that the pension company can provide for the participants. Now, just for kicks, let's look at what happens if Para were to have a bad year. So, I pulled reports from 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020. Based on these four reports, I can tell you that Para is relying heavily on investment growth to curtail any funding shortages their actuarial models find. Each year, each year, this is year over year, Para is paying out roughly $2 billion more in benefits than it is taking in through contributions. Investment returns are relied upon to make up the shortfall and provide any excess that they may have to, to actually grow the fund. And this is an incredibly risky strategy. In my opinion, the pension fund must be income outcome, or excuse me, income outflow neutral to not be considered a legalized Ponzi scheme. So essentially, as close as possible, you want to match the monthly intakes to the monthly outflows because at that rate, you, you can have stable growth over time. But if you have a situation like this where you're paying out more than you're taking in from contributions, you're, you really are playing a very dangerous game with the stock market, basically betting that it's never going to go down. So let's look at, at a hypothetical and, and say what happens if they had three years in a row like they had in 2018. So in 2018, Para lost 3.5%, which equates to $1.84 billion in losses. The plan paid out $5.2 billion in benefits that year and only took in $2.99 billion in contributions. Taken all together, this means the plan suffered a net decrease in value in one year of $4.05 billion for 2018. And they ended that year with a net dollar value of $49,293,848,000. So again, let's expand this and ask what happens if Para were to have three of these years in a row. And we'll just use the same numbers as 2018. 
at the end of this hypothetical three-year period, and again, three and a half percent is not a big loss, but at the end of this th- hypothetical three and a half, or I'm sorry, three-year period, the fund would be down to thirty-seven billion one hundred thirty-four million seven hundred sixty-seven thousand dollars, with annual benefit payments accounting for slightly more than fourteen percent of plan value. So that's that's a big deal, and it is pretty scary because again, three and a half percent, it really is not a huge loss. And for context of like absolute worst case scenario, the bear market of 2007 to 2009 saw the Dow lose 54.1% of its value. So what would Para do if we faced another prolonged bear market like that? And, And especially with losses that large. In all likelihood, pensioners would be forced to take a pay cut with no input on the matter to try and keep the fund solvent. And that is exactly what happened with the Teamsters Union pension a few years ago. Some folks went from making over $3,000 a month to $1,000 a month overnight. And they they actually only got letters. They they didn't even get the courtesy of an, an actual person calling them. They got letters and they were told in some cases they were taking a 66% reduction. And for context too, when 2007 to 2009 happened, it actually took Para almost 10 years to get back for their uh, for their fund value to get back to where it was in 2007. Almost 10 years. Almost 10 years. So the, these things are not a good idea at all. At all. At least not, not the way that they're currently being ran. Again, the individual has no ownership rights, and you're relying on outsized market returns basically to keep you covered indefinitely. And, and that is not a very safe or good strategy, in my opinion. All right, so another point of contention that I get is, but what about the hidden fees of 401k plans? Well, according to an article from CNBC.com, the average all-in fee for 401k participants in America is a whopping 0.45%. This means that for every $1,000 the average American has in a 401k plan, their plan fee, or excuse me, their plan fee is $4.50. To extrapolate this number, the average 401k balance in the US is $92,148 according to Business Insider. So the average American would pay roughly $414 per year to their 401k administrator. And I do want to be clear on this. These fees are not taken out of the participant's account. So you, you wouldn't actually, like if you were to look at your 401k statement, you wouldn't see it deducted from your actual balance. What, what happens is the fees get skimmed off the top of the investment return. So let, let's say if mutual fund A had a real return of 16% for the year, the fee adjusted return would be 15.55%. So, and I don't think that's onerous. I mean, definitely you want your investment broker to be able to make a profit and stay in business to keep offering access to their platform and, and their uh, research information. So I, I'm personally, I'm okay with that. You know, you're, you're paying for a service. Para is slightly cheaper when it comes to management fees, at, at least for the rate, but most of that can be attributed to the uh, economies of scale because they have so many forced participants in the plan. So per the 2020 para annual report, the expense ratio of the plan was 0.323%, which means participants are paying $3.23 per $1,000 invested. For someone who has a vested balance equivalent to our 401k example, this means they are paying para roughly $297 per year. 
But in terms of raw numbers, all participants covered by the state pension paid PARA $189.5 million in all-in plan management fees for the year ended 2020. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And, and again, it, on an individual basis, it's cheaper. But when you, again, consider the fact that they have a captured uh, demographic, they're, they're making money hand over fist. Again, for 2020 alone, $189.5 million just in plan management fees. So we're going to go ahead and move into the wrap-up portion here. Main takeaway, PARA or any other public pension is not immune to the investment risk of individual defined contribution plan style or 401k style plans. Any failures by PARA to reach its investment goals can and most likely will be forcibly covered by the state, taking more money from the private sector. And defined benefit pension style plans are bad for the employees and the employers because over time, their costs become irrational and unsustainable. And also for many employees, it lures them into a false sense of security and absolves them, or at least in their mind, absolves them from saving for their own retirement. And it causes them to, to throw caution to the wind uh, and they, they just spend every dollar they ever make and they don't, they don't ever think about the future because they think they're going to be covered no matter what. But again, we have to stop and ask ourselves, well, what happens when these things implode, which over time, most of them will. Actually, just about all of them will. And for the state, it also creates a strong voting block because the state can use the power of the purse to push for increased benefits when that is mathematically unfeasible. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider contributing to the show. You can contribute on a recurring basis through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. Or you can make a one-time contribution by using the show's cash app information, which is also included in that show notes page. Any contribution amount helps, and thank you again to everyone in advance who decides to do so. Also, please consider downloading the MeWe app and joining the show's private group so we can have more sane discussion around historical and current political issues. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next time.